Bet365 sponsors our podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello Joe. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Oh, thanks. I'm very excited, thanks for asking, uh, because uh, you and I today are joined by the wonderful, the magnificent Ali Maxwell. Hi, Ali. Hello, guys. Not, not as excited as I am. It's always an absolute pleasure to join you. How are you today? Yeah, I'm really well. I've already recorded a Going Up, Going Down podcast for The Athletic this morning, and it's only just turned 10 a.m. So, I mean, I've been up for hours, which is unusual at this time, but uh, I'm, I'm always excited to talk EFL football. You are a plug machine, aren't you? Consistently, uh, you're, all, you're always ready. I think, no, listen, it's a very admirable quality. I think it's fantastic. You don't often get very long to talk, uh, you know, and then you have to, you gotta, got to get it in there. But that's a, it's an excellent podcast, Going Up, Going Down. The things they don't tell you when you go freelance is that, you know, you, you, you know which way your bread is buttered and you, you've got to get good at <laughs> plugging stuff. That's fine by me. Yeah. Anyway, listen, we're going to talk about the AFL today. Uh, Ali has kindly provided a list for us uh, of players that he thinks are interesting to, to pay attention to in the near future. We didn't want anyone to feel uh, particularly left out. So we're changing the way that we are, the, the format of this episode slightly. We're going to talk about it from a player perspective rather than a team perspective. Um, and that's, that's all very exciting, isn't it? But before we get started, let me remind you that uh, if you would like to, you can subscribe to The Athletic and currently get 40% off by visiting theathletic.com forward slash TIFO transfers. That's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO transfers for all of the most cool reading available about sport and uh, football, other things. Good advert. Insert good advert here. Please go and do that. Uh, anyway, for now, I will leave you in the, uh, the cool hands and the warm embrace of Ali Maxwell. Okay, uh, Ali Maxwell. I would like to start by talking about Abera Eze because obviously he's moved from QPR to Crystal Palace. Tell me these things. What's he like on the ball? What kind of contribution will he provide? What kind of player is he? Go, go, go. In order, absolutely magnificent. Uh, hopefully a large contribution. And I've already forgotten the third question. But no, um, <laughs> I, I, I honestly could talk about Eze all day because I have a huge appetite for covering the EFL. I like all of the three divisions. I like pretty much everything about the EFL apart from the pretty horrendous governance thereof and all of the off-field issues. But that all sort of fades away when you watch certain players and when you can watch players develop, uh, which in the EFL uh, is something that happens a lot. And Eze is someone who we've watched develop over the last three seasons. It burst onto the scene, uh, a lone spell with Wickham. You have to remember with Eze that he had been released by a number of different London clubs, probably most notably Millwall at the age of 16, 17, 18. 
uh, and hadn't really found a home. So QPR have picked him up. They've got a great youth system and, and, and they work really hard to develop players uh, and they will take on players released by um, Premier League clubs in the London area. And he went on loan to Wickham without anyone really knowing much about him, knowing how to pronounce his name. Everyone was very excited about the potential for puns with him being called easy, but sadly that's not how you pronounce it. He went to Wickham and within his first month, he scored one goal from 25 yards with his right foot, one goal from 25 yards with his left foot. And we started to sit up and take notice. Um, QPR realized what they had then, I think. Uh, and the way that he's developed over the last 18 months has been just one of our sort of favorite parts of, of covering the EFL. He is a ball carrier extraordinaire. Um, for me, the best dribbler in the division uh, this season. There are other players maybe with lower centres of gravity and, and maybe even other players with, with greater sort of flicks and tricks. Side Ben Rama springs to mind there. But I think in terms of efficiency and dribbling ability, Eze has to be uh, the, the hardest player to tackle. And partly... Uh, because he's doing it in not always in central areas. He does like to drift out to the left. That's where he often receives the ball, trying to find pockets of space in, in, in that left half space or even out uh, on the left flank. But because he's dribbling ultimately through the heart of the pitch rather than down the touchline, uh, I think his dribbling is perhaps better uh, than other players whose uh, stats or data might show them to, to complete more dribbles. I would say quite Grealish-esque in the way that he carries the ball and also in in the way that because of that elite skill that he has, the way that he demands that opposition teams, uh, you know, double team or, or just send extra attention to him when he's on the ball. It's such a, a valuable skill for a player to have. And it's why, and, and it's one that I think will translate uh, in, into the Premier League. Um, he, he's got great upper body strength and agility. It's very hard to knock him off the ball. And I think what's quite nice about him as well, dare I say it, quite an old school thing, something that will please, uh, you know, proper football men, is that he really does stay on his feet. You know, he's the type of player that gets kicked a lot, gets fouled a lot. But, you know, he, he doesn't try and buy free kicks as much as some other players. He, he really does try and, and continue with his run. Uh, and I think that's quite admir admirable as well. So um, first and foremost, I would say watching Eze play is a treat whenever he's on the ball because of his ability to, to carry it. Um, but, you know, he, he's developed the other side of his game as well. Um, production in the final third, whether it's picking the right pass and, and executing good through balls. He had a good partnership with Naki Wells at the start of last season. Um, it, sometimes it feels like he holds on to the ball a little too long uh, and, and maybe you'd want him to move the ball a little bit quicker. But I just can't wait to see how how he takes to Premier League football. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that a large part of his skill set will uh, translate very well indeed. See, I had all sorts of questions for you there, Ali, and then one by one you just answered them. So I've, I've had to scramble um, to, uh, to to continue the conversation. Can I jump in then? Just a personal question here, Ali, because, you, you know, you're an EFL expert. That's what it says uh, underneath your name on your, your website, um, AliMaxwell.com. on my gravestone, but, uh, hopefully. And on your gravestone. <laughs> but uh, you said that I was really intrigued there to hear you say that you're very excited to see how he's going to perform in the Premier League. At the weekends, do you have to presumably prioritise watching uh, as and when available uh, EFL games or visiting games or watching championship games on television uh, instead of Premier League games? Do you find yourself, uh, presumably those are... Those clash fairly often. Yeah, that is a personal question. Thanks, Joe. Uh, I'll, I'll give a little insight into my weekend. <laughs> Why not? Um, I almost every Saturday work on the EFL Highlights show um, where I am uh, at times a producer, at times a pundit, and often uh, both uh, in the same day. And that's been the case for me for about five years. So um, very much so on a Saturday, I am watching the championship matches. Those are the ones that 
we in the production office get sort of beamed in. So you'll have a grid of about 10 games going on at one time, which is very exciting. Yeah, we will, of course, cool. have um, Gillette Soccer on as well, so that we're abreast of all the other goings on in League One and League Two. And of course, uh, through osmosis there, you do get the Premier League results as they come in. Um, as you can imagine, in any sort of production team, there are fans of, of Premier League clubs. So it's not like we completely switch off from that, but it's definitely fair to say that my focus is on is on the championship. And it's not, it is not unusual for me to not know all of the Premier League scores um, by the time I get home on a Saturday night. But that that is often rectified on Sunday, where I catch up with match of the day and and watch as many Super Sunday games as possible. So it's just a lot of football all of the time, basically. <laughs> What is um? What's the green room like on the AFL highlight show? I'm not sure there is a green room. We basically go production office to dressing room. If you're a pundit, you get your own dressing room, which is always quite exciting. Um, so I does suppose it that, you, yeah, does it have your name on the door of the dressing no, room? No, Adam Maxwell, it, Georgie Leg. Dressing room three is what I call it. Um, but everyone knows <laughs> it's mine. Everyone knows not to go in there. No, normally because it's the, <laughs> it's the same building that they film a lot of the. It's where Premier League productions are based. And so you will often rub shoulders with uh, uh, Ryan, oh, it's in Stockley uh, Park. Uh, yeah, that's right. And all the refs as well doing VAR. It's an absolute hub of activity. You'll often um, <laughs> you'll often go to the toilet at half time, but everyone's going to the toilet at that time because it's half time. And sometimes you'll open the door to the toilet, and there Mike Dean or or, or someone will be staring back at you in 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 flesh. It's horrifying. It's quite, it, it is. It can be quite disconcerting. And then you'll go downstairs and get ready for the show, and and there you'll have um, you know Tony Adams or Ryan Giggs or or someone like that. It's a, it's a hell of a place, I must say. Ali, can we talk about Jude Bellingham? Um, yes. Because when you left for Borussia Dortmund, um, the uh, news cycle was kind of seized by the decision to retire his shirt number, which for a young player, I felt like uh, he was subjected to some far, fairly unfair lulls mm. uh, from the Twitter community. Um, can you just describe what kind of player he is? Because uh, he's one of the most exciting footballers I've seen at his age for a really, really long time. Mm. Um, and it feels as if a lot of people haven't actually had the opportunity to see him. Obviously, Birmingham didn't spend a lot of time on television last season. Um, and when, as and when he, he moves over to the Bundesliga, he'll kind of he'll, he'll kind of disappear into a little bit of a vacuum. Can you just mm. walk us through the kind of progression of his career to this point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a guy who every single big club has known about for for years and years. And the thing. Well, one of the many things that that stands him apart from the rest is that instead of joining one one of the bigger club academies, he and I think advised by his dad, who's a very well known uh, non league goal scorer in the Midlands area, uh, and I think a policeman or something of that ilk, uh, he was adamant that that Jude Bellingham, because they were um, big fans of Birmingham City, would be looked after by the Birmingham City Academy and would play his first senior football matches for Birmingham. So they, they managed to avoid the advances of, you know, your Manchester Cities and your Manchester Uniteds who offer such attractive deals for, you know, I was going to say 13-year-olds, but it, it goes lower, doesn't it? You know, basically young talent of any age. It's a it's a pretty strange world, academy football and, and those young age groups. So um, I guess that's a little bit of background on him. Uh, Birmingham fans were kind of waiting for him to be thrust into the spotlight, knowing that they had a gem on their hands. And it was Pep Clotet, their manager this season, who who just decided, yeah, I'm going to give him uh, about as many minutes as I physically can. Uh, arguably, 
it was a bit concerning at times how much he was playing given his his young age at just 16. In time, in terms of, of what sort of player he, he is at the moment, I think one of the most exciting things is that you just know that Bellingham in five years' time is going to look a bit different on the pitch to, to how he looks now. They played a they played a four four two Birmingham, and he he got minutes across the midfield, mostly uh, on the left side. He's right footed, so you know tucked in a little bit in a left midfield position. He would he would move into central areas and and try and impact the game from there. I think that he he could be anything. Uh, to be honest, that that's what keeps getting said about him because you know even his development between now and the age of 21 is four years worth at Dortmund, where really um, he, he could end up being any kind of midfield player, possibly a wide player, or maybe even further forward. Um, what I would say is that the standout skill at the moment, a bit like Eze, it is ball carrying for me. Uh, certainly with the ball at his feet, that's what stands out. Um, he's got wonderful balance, ability to change direction, send, send defenders the wrong way with sort of subtle movements, and, and he's a very skillful player. Um, his his passing is tidy. It, I would say it doesn't stand out uh, at the moment for its creativity. Um, another thing that does stand out is is his appetite for the defensive side of the game, which which probably isn't what people might think just having uh, read uh, things on Twitter about him and watched compilations. His his absolute tenacity to win the ball back and the the extent to which he stood up to the physical rigors of the championship at, at the age of sixteen is. I mean, unbelievably uh, notable and impressive. Uh, he did score a few goals. Mostly, he showed a good ability to sort of make the right runs into the box, time the runs well, and to finish loose balls or cutbacks in the area. His long-range shooting, I must admit, I haven't been too impressed with. Um, his technique when shooting, is a, he, he often scuffs the ball when shooting from range. I mean, this is an unbelievably, you know, this, this is applying about as harsh a, a critical eye as you can to someone who is so young. Most people in his age group won't have even been seen at senior level. So I'm just trying to give a flavour of what I've seen. Um, really good ball carrier. Um, seems to just have something mentally. Seems to read the game really well for someone his age. And this this absolute desire to improve uh, an appetite for the defensive side of the game uh, and, and this quality on the ball that will improve over time. Um, but, but hence why I think people just still think of him as a bit of a blank canvas for Dortmund to, to work with uh, and what a team to, to move if you want to develop as a young footballer. Have you spent any time with him in mixed zones? And I just want to kind of get a, a sense for what sort of person he is. I, I have to admit I haven't. Um, I haven't spent any time with him. I, I can't really speak to his character other than to say that, understandably, given that he was the darling of Birmingham City uh, and given the maturity that he and his team that are managing him have shown in their decision-making uh, in his short career so far, you, you hear nothing but good things about, about the way that he is, um, how driven he is and, and basically how sort of single-minded he is about becoming the best possible footballer that he can be. But, you know, it, it's always worth reminding yourself that he's well, is he 17 now, but he was 16 for large parts yeah. of the season. And, uh, you know, I remember what I was like at 16. Uh, I didn't show <laughs> I didn't show any of those traits. So, you know, the, from, from a from a I guess from a personality perspective, only good reviews so far. Uh, hey, can we chat uh, generally about the finances in the, in the division? Because uh, I think we've seen so far this season, as as far as we can see, the the biggest incoming deal is Jordan Hugill's three million pound move from from West Ham to to Norwich, who of course just been relegated, so have the benefit of the parachute payments. A year ago, we saw very different numbers: twelve million pounds, ten million pounds. 
players. That's quite different, isn't it? Are, are the clubs feeling the pinch? Is there much discussion about uh, COVID's impact on the market at that level? Or can you just give us a brief overview of, of how you feel that's that's being impacted at the moment? Yeah, I would just sum it up by saying that uncertainty just governs everything at the moment, especially when it comes to, to football finance. Um, League One and League Two clubs are in uh, a really tough position because for them, it's a higher proportion of their income comes from the match day itself, uh, ticket sales uh, and, and obviously concessions and food and drink and the match day itself. In the championship, TV revenue is a little bit higher, certainly much higher for those who get given money by the Premier League uh, in, in the form of parachute payments. So, you know, we have seen some fees spent, but I would just say that at the moment, uh, it's just so uncertain that, that things aren't really getting done. It, it seems like the season is getting closer and closer. I think we're about three weeks away, but it's worth remembering that they've, they've, they've changed the transfer window. So it will go on until mid-October. I expect it to be a very strange first month of the season where there will still be a lot of teams who are doing a lot of business and the majority of their transfer business with the season already underway. So it might benefit some teams who have a settled te uh, settled squad. There are a few clubs like Preston and, and Blackburn, Bristol City, who, who pretty much already have their squad as it will be. So maybe that will help clubs early on in the season. In terms of just transfer fees and, and not seeing the big ones, those are generally clubs with parachute payments who have come down from the Premier League that, that spend, you know, 10, 15 million pounds on individual players. It's rare for a club not in receipt of parachute payments to spend that kind of money, even though we have seen Birmingham signing Sunjic last season for maybe eight or nine mil. Uh, Reading signed Pushgas for, for quite a lot of money, but it, but it is quite Fulham. rare. So what about Fulham? Well, they but they were they came down from the Premier League. They had the parachute payment money, and and that's that's what that they really. Oh, okay. Well, sorry, within the three years since they since they were relegated. No, no. Fulham had were relegated from the Premier League in eighteen nineteen, and last it summer. Just no, feels they, like three no, years they were. Ago, Joe. <laughs> really? Yeah, so oh, then, yeah. so there you go. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was so much longer ago. So, so what I would say, Joe, is I wouldn't be surprised if we do see, um, you know, that three million biggest transfer fee that that won't last till mid-October um, but it's just the fact that Bournemouth and Watford and Norwich they haven't sold any of their players yet and that's going to play a big yeah. part you know you can make a you can make a starting 11 of Norwich Bournemouth and Watford players combined that wouldn't look out of place in in, in Premier League mid-table and who are all reported to be um, moving at some point for quite a lot of money but it just hasn't happened yet because of all this uncertainty. So when those clubs, you know, it's not out of the question that, that Norwich, Bournemouth and Watford could raise another 80 million quid, uh, certainly more than 50 in player sales, at which point they might have a bit more to work with. Ali, what's the um, what's the retention rate been like? I mean, have um, did some of the clubs try and trim their squad size to reduce the wage bill over the summer? Um, not hugely in the championship in, in league one and league two, because contracts are shorter. It's, um, it's, it, it, it kind of suits clubs and players at that level to sign one or, or two year contracts, or at least it did suit players before this global pandemic. And now we've got a, a very troubling situation in league one, and league two, where there's, there's just a huge pool of players out of contract, uh, trying to get the same sort of deals that they were on previously uh, and the clubs aren't offering them. So I, I do predict in league one and league two that, you know, come the start of October, 
it's going to flip around and suddenly there's going to be a, a, a lot of players who realize that in quite basic terms, they just need employment for the next nine months and, and will have to reduce their demands and the demands, dare I say, of their agents as well. In the championship, it, it hasn't quite been as much. I mean, um, the, the championship TV deal is uh, about £8 million, I think. Uh, League One, it's about a million and a bit less in, in League Two. So they do have more income championship clubs uh, just being given to them uh, as part of that TV deal. For the most part, there, there hasn't been a huge amount of, of trimming, if you will. Um, players who, have, who are out of contract, a lot more left than you would ordinarily have expected. So I think there was a bit of like, okay, well, we do need to trim a little bit, so we'll just let the guys out of contract go. Um, but, but generally, um, a, a lot of teams are, are just kind of staying where they are and, and sticking with a similar squad to last season and, uh, and, and will maybe look to add one or two uh, in the next six weeks or so. But it, it does make you wonder. It kind of uh, There's a group of teams who just missed out on promotion or just missed out on the playoffs. And normally you try and pick out one or two of those to sort of make the leap and, and make a big step forward and start challenging at the top end of the, of the division. And as we are currently with three weeks to go, it's, it's quite difficult to pick one out of those teams because for the most part, it's the, it's the same squads and the same managers. And, and therefore, you know, it's difficult to predict a, a huge rise in, in performance. Right, this one's not strictly transfer related, but uh, I would like to ask you about Calvin Phillips uh, because he's been called up to the England squad, of course, without ever making a, a Premier League appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I would like to ask you how, how good a player he is because as Seb's written here in his notes for me, he's heard him described as England's best six, which seems dot, 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 bold, dot, 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 but happy to be corrected. Could you correct <laughs> or not correct Seb for me, please, Ali Maxwell of wow. Going Up, Going Down podcast? Is he a four? Is he a six? It all comes down to squad number semantics, as it, it so really, often it does. It really does. No, I'm slightly dodging the question there because off the top of my head, I'm trying to think of who else would be in that conversation. I think that's probably quite important. Um, I, I wonder if, if your Declan Rice's and your Harry Winks is, uh, is, is Jordan Henderson a six? I don't know. I mean, he's just mm. captained a team to uh, Premier League success. So I dare say he might probably lay claim to being better than Calvin Phillips but it's difficult to say isn't it I mean one of the one of the big things for clubs all across football is in recruitment when you're looking at players who play in different divisions to yourself is what's called benchmarking and working out how their performances in one division could or would translate to the division that you are in so this is going to be quite interesting and is always interesting with with top level championship players how will they translate to the Premier League in the last few years there have been a lot of a lot of young players especially signed from the championship to the premier league what i've noticed is generally they don't necessarily hit the ground and just absolutely start smashing it in the premier league straight away because i do think there's a big step up we see that with the teams that that are our, you know they are the championship champions norwich city for example and then they get relegated with 20 odd points the next season so it's a big it's a big big step up what i would say about phillips is that physically and technically he was clearly like a cut above the championship, kind of a bit like when your your older brother joins in with with your football match with your mates and just dominates everything. Um, it's it's worth pointing out when you talk about Calvin Phillips, just the unbelievable impact that Marcelo Bielsa has had on his career. You could say that about a number of Leeds players. Um, Bielsa took over a squad of players that was not considered that impressive uh, in championship terms. And many of them you will see in the Premier League next season, the likes of Stuart Dallas, 
who plays about eight different positions under Bielsa. Luke Ayling, who had spent a large part of his career as a League One right back, uh, and and I, I'm pretty sure will be galloping forward in the Premier League uh, for Leeds next season. Bielsa likes to stick with those he knows generally. Um, Phillips, before Bielsa arrived, had got a fair amount of game time because he was always considered to be quite talented, but hadn't necessarily translated into making a a particular impact on games in the championship. And I'm not sure that it was necessarily considered that he was a number six at all uh, until Bielsa arrived, needed someone to play uh, a quite a specific role where your defensive responsibilities are, are pretty immense, but you're also, te- you know, he's also quarterback to use that term as well and uh, and, and, and leaned on for a, a, a range of passing and a, a patience on the ball and a knowledge of basically the, the sort of first point of every attack almost. So it's a really important role in Leeds's team and no one would have picked Calvin Phillips to have had the last few years that he'd had. So you have to give Bielsa a lot of credit uh, and then the player as well for uh, adapting to the to the rigorous physical demands of, of playing for Marcelo Bielsa, clearly just soaking in so much uh, of, uh, of, of the coaching ability that Bielsa has. And now, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think... He will very much impress people when he plays in the Premier League. I'm surprised that he was called up to the England squad having not played a Premier League game because I, I was under the impression that that was um, a, a bit of a sticking point um, for Southgate, certainly something that he had mentioned in passing when talking about Jack Grealish after he'd had such a good year in the Championship. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited to see how he does. Clearly, the step up to the Premier League means that he will be tested a lot more and there have been a couple of times where he's wavered. Uh, the You know, when you play such a... When you play such a, uh, a high line at times and when you play quite a risky uh, passing style, there have been one or two times where he's given the ball away in dangerous areas. He was sent off in a game against QPR. It was just a really petulant red card to pick up. Uh, and that was a disappointing for, for someone who was considered to be a leader of this team uh, in a time where Leeds really did need him. But generally, can't really say much more positive stuff about him because for the last two years, he's just dictated things in a, a team that we've admired very much uh, in, in the championship. So, yeah, I, I can't say, can't really speak much much more highly of him. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait to see Leeds in the Premier League. I think it's going to be fascinating, potentially even opening opening night against Liverpool as well, which will be, I don't know if they've released the TV fixtures yet. but Well, uh, if you remember cool. uh, Liverpool-Norwich, which was the first game of the Premier League season I do. on that Friday night when there was that rather nice, um, a lot of love for the, the bravery uh, which is often the the other side of the naivety coin. I think I always think um, if no, you, you know if what? you think I, that the like... pundits were were impressed by the way that Norwich approached that game, <laughs> just wait until uh, Leeds roll into town. That's true. I remember watching that game and uh, and being yeah surprised at some of the punditry around it. Also feeling like very promising for Norwich ahead of the season, thinking yes, that they handled I Liverpool pretty well actually. <laughs> like you know Liverpool are just a fantastic team, and uh, in that I think it was the it was the first half that they conceded all those goals. Pookie finally got one, uh, and then they went on to have a couple of good results before being awful for the yeah. rest of the year and I making think... you and me look like a fool, Ali Maxwell, because <laughs> you'll remember that you were here last year and you said that they'd be the best team of the promoted three, uh, I do and that Sheffield United would be, would be the worst. <laughs> I, so, um, uh, yeah. I think it's worth pointing out at this juncture, um, far be it to compare Norwich and Leeds too closely, and Norwich, despite winning the championship, I think conceded something like 60 goals that season, which yeah. is which yeah. is an unusually high number for a for a team going up. And they never sorted out those defensive issues, did they? Whereas Leeds, uh, their defensive numbers have been magnificent for two years. So they're, they're, they are going up a much more solid unit, that's for sure. Mm, very exciting. OK, listen, when we come back, we're going to hear uh, about Ali's team. Ali's picked a team <laughs> and we're going to hear about it. 
I'm here to talk to you about something very important today, and that's below-the-belt grooming. Now, Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming, offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels, and Manscaped has just launched in the UK. Now, over here in the in the dark ages, we've gone years without using the right tools for the job, so you can be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products, and that's life-changing in a good way, gang. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents, and the water resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. And we have a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. You can get 20% off and free shipping by using the code EPL20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Feel the breeze. That's not one of Manscaped's taglines. I just threw that in there. I've got some others that you might like too. Be free. Um, How about... Cut, cut down the rainforest. That's not that's anti-environmentalist. We don't want that. Um, there, you know, Manscapes is just happy shaving, which is great. But I like be free. Yeah, maybe if, if the Manscaped people are listening, maybe I don't know. You want to you want to take that one, discuss it at one of your marketing. Be free. Manscaped.com. Okay, time to hear about Ali's team. Seb, take us away. Uh, you're going to lead us, or lead Ali, through Ali's team. It's all very complicated, but it will be. It makes sense when people start hearing what's happening. Yeah, I'm more just going to get out of Ali's way and let him list his team. Um, although the, the, the first name on the list is an interesting one, because it was the first championship game um, I saw last season, and this player dropped an almighty bollock in that game. Ali, who's your goalkeeper? So it, this goalkeeper is Simon Sluger uh, of Luton Town. Uh, I think that the way that I understood my remit here was um, potentially <laughs> potentially looking at sensible transfers and trying to take a step back and trying to work out what's the what's the uh, what's the period before one becomes a sensible transfer on the TIFO pod. Maybe what oh. I just call an interesting player, and it doesn't necessarily yeah. mean interesting because. They are going to be the best player in the league, but I, I just always interested in uh, in player development. And uh, here are some guys that I think could be ones to watch in the championship this season. Not not necessarily, as I say, the the best players in their position, but just guys who you might not have heard much about uh, and might hear more about over the next nine months. So Sluger, I just I just find him a fascinating. Uh, case study because he was not one of the best goalkeepers in the championship over the course of last season and they were probably th- a top tier of three Bartos Bielkowski of Millwall uh, Bree Samba of Nottingham Forest and, and Rafael Cabral at Reading all had excellent seasons you also had Dylan Phillips of Charlton uh, and Marek Rodak of Fulham who had uh, objectively excellent seasons and you can't say the same for Sluger because as Sev said he started the season so badly like it's a, it sometimes feels in the championship like it, it's a league with quite bad goalkeepers. There's, there's basically, it's almost unheard of, I think, for a goalkeeper to go through a whole season with a, with a, without at least one real howler. Last season, we had George Long in Golfer Hall, Lee Camp at Birmingham, Jack Butland as well, of course, at Stoke, who seemed to be having clangers every sort of thir- three or four games. And Sluger very much started in that vein. He, he was Luton's record transfer and it was such an unusual signing for them to make. It was their first, I think they'd only made one other signing from outside of the UK and Ireland in like a decade previously. They won promotion from League One. It was back-to-back promotions all the way from League Two to the Championship. And then they dropped like a million quid, maybe two million quid 
on uh, this goalkeeper. Turns out they'd played against him in a friendly in Slovenia a year or so before <laughs> where he was playing for Rijeka, is what I'm calling them. Um, and they just sort of kept tabs on him and then pulled the trigger. But it, it, I mean, I think it's unusual yeah. for any club's record signing to be a goalkeeper. Uh, but that's what it was. So, of course, he started so badly. He, he made an error against Middlesbrough in the opening game. And then for a few months, you know, he would routinely throw the ball to the opposition. Uh, he would let, let shots squirm under him. He once let one uh, a pass back from a defender roll under his foot for an own goal. It's that sort of thing. It was real embarrassing stuff. So he got dropped. He missed, I think, 11 games. Uh, and he came back in with 20 games to go because it turned out there are other goalkeepers weren't weren't great either. And he just had a magnificent 20 games to finish the season. So uh, it was almost like he was so eager to impress. I think there's with goalkeepers, maybe even more so than outfield players, the psychological aspect is so important. And coming in uh, from a, from abroad, a new division, different types of, uh, of uh, things you have to cope with as a goalkeeper, potentially more crosses, um, and he struggled to adapt and then basically just found his form. So it's someone that, based on that last 20 games of the season, I'm hoping playing for a team in Luton who are much better defensively under Nathan Jones as they were under Graham Jones, who they started last season with. Uh, I think Sluger might have the platform to thrive. And, you know, he came with good pedigrees. He's had international experience. And, uh, yeah, I just think it's interesting to me that after a few months of him signing, everyone had written it, written him off as a terrible record signing. You know what a what a shocking transfer that was. And I dare say, come the end of this season, they might sell him for a profit. Yeah. Before we go into your back foot, you mentioned Jack Butland in that, and every time I hear his name now, I just feel sad. I, what's happened to his career? I don't know. I don't know to be honest with you. Um, the 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 vibe at Stoke City has been so bad for so many years now, not not just since they got relegated, but I think for a year or two beforehand. And he has really suffered from that. You know, I think there's an extent to which you, you uh, let players off for poor performances when they just play for a poor team uh, with a poor atmosphere and a succession of managers that can't turn things around. But um, it got to a point with Butland last season where, you know, you just couldn't ignore how poor he was. And in comparison to, to what he'd been before, of course, that that it's just always so stark when you've seen someone who, you know, was battling for England's number one jersey and, and who literally just lost games for Stoke at the start of last season. I think they had eight points after 15 games. And it's brutal to say, and I try not to criticise players where possible, but a number of those games were tight games on the balance of play that just involved Butland giving the opposition a goal or two and, and, and turning wins into draws or draws into losses. So uh, it's it's hopeful that if he is trusted with the gloves this season under Michael O'Neill, that the atmosphere has, has improved a lot and Stoke are expected to be maybe not a challenger for the title, but potentially a, a playoff challenger. And I dare say if things are a bit calmer at the club and, and you know if the foundations are a bit better, then Butland might be able to, to have a sort of Sluger-like recovery. Hmm. Okay, more positive things. Um, uh, let's go into your back four, but let's also start with a um, a player that's popped up in our Sensible Transfers series. Uh, Swansea's Joe Roden. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's one of my centre-backs here. Uh, I think if it weren't for uh, a really annoying ankle injury that he's had uh, that kept him out for large parts of last season, Rodon would quite possibly have left for the Premier League already uh, in, in the sort of Chris Meppham, Adam Webster vibe of 
you know, you, you get games in the championship as a centre-back and, and you really, Premier League clubs only seem to need about one season's worth of, of data and video and scouting uh, until they decide, yeah, yeah, we, we want to give this guy a go. And, and clearly, as we've seen with the transfer fees involved with Webster and Mepham, um, they're willing to pay quite a lot for, for British centre-backs. So I think, he, I think he possibly would have left the Premier League already. Actually, in this 11, he's maybe the most likely to leave this summer anyway. But I think there's a thought that because of the injuries, um, you know, that people might be a little wary of pulling the trigger on him just yet. A really exciting prospect for Wales as well. This is a guy that alongside Mepham and Ampadu, depending on where he finishes up uh, in terms of his sort of natural position, um, could be at the heart of Wales' defence for, for years to come. At first and foremost, what stands out about Rodon is he's uh, a bit of a throwback. It's probably a term that gets used too much when talking about centre-backs, uh, but he feels like a bit of a throwback just in his appetite for aggressive defending. Uh, a ball winner, both in the air and on the deck, um, if you know he's he's he he absolutely relishes the physical side of the game and in the championship you know you've got teams that you come up against who do play a very direct style as well as other teams who play really interesting possession based styles so you do you do get a bit of everything as a center back you have to deal with you know the movement of someone like Bamford or, or Charlie Austin uh, or, or uh, Watkins one week. Uh, and then you have to come up against uh, more of a battering ram in Lucas Djukovic or Kiefer Moore or Matt Smith. So it, it's, it's, you get a real sort of education as a young centre-back. And he's shown himself up to the challenge, certainly as a pure defender. But then I think also, and it's partly down to the team that he plays for, he's got a lot uh, to thank the, the sort of decision makers at Swansea who are so... Um, who are so intent on playing a possession-based style and have been for a few years now, under Graham Potter, of course, uh, and now under Steve Cooper. And that means that his passing numbers always do stand out. You know, he's got the remit to play risky, if you like, but, but essentially progressive passes um, to spread the ball out wide where possible, to step in uh, into midfield with the ball at his feet as well. And that's going to help a young defender develop those skills, which are so highly sought after at the top level. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, when he's been fit and available, he's been a huge player for Swansea. He, he feels like a leader, even though he's only about 22 years old and just a really confident player that I like a lot. Okay, now who are we putting around him in this back four? So I'm going to pair him, uh, because Rodon's right-footed, I'm going to pair him with a lefty centre-back. Uh, as we know, they are all the rage at the moment. Uh, he's called Tom McIntyre, and he plays for Reading. He just started to, to make his way into the starting eleven uh, post-COVID in, in that sort of 10-game stretch, nine games it was, towards the end of the season. And he really stood out, actually. Um, it's a Reading side that are set up quite defensively, that do defend in a low block. And, and there were definitely a few games I watched where... The opposition, uh, you know, had a lot of the ball. Um, Reading would deny space in central areas and therefore the centre-backs were having to deal with a lot of crosses, a lot of balls into the box. And, and, you know, that's the sort of thing that sometimes it is said that young defenders can struggle with, just the, 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 the physicality of it and even the concentration and positioning of it. And there was a game against Charlton where he was absolutely magnificent playing against an experienced defender in Michael Morrison. Uh, McIntyre just stood out, just absolutely immaculate in the air. Um, really impressive for a young defender. And yeah, as I say, left-footed as well. Yet to yet to decide just how good he is technically. Doesn't really, you know, Reading aren't set up to, to give their centre-backs a lot of, a lot of um, a remit to sort of spray passes around. But he's someone that I'm keeping an eye on just because he kind of broke out towards the back end of last season. Reading would be mad not to give him game time because of kind of what I've just said. Like, 
it's obviously not as easy as this, but if he is good and if he plays a full season at a good level for Reading, he will be worth 10 million quid to a Premier League club. So it's worth it for them to, to give him as much game time as possible. He's come through their youth system uh, and has always been a real darling of, of the youth system, you know, captain all the way up and, and stuff like that. So I'm looking forward to him becoming a, a first teamer this season. Okay, and our fullbacks, who have we got here? Well, one of them I know has uh, popped up on Jose Mourinho's radar at Tottenham. Uh, so lead us through those. Yeah, so the right back, Jed Spence, um, he plays for Middlesbrough. And I mean, it's ridiculous, really. There's the, the, the talent coming through in this one specific right back or right wing back position uh, is pretty obscene. He's actually the same age group as uh, the Sessegnon twins. Uh, of Jaden Bogle at Derby, who's got two years under his belt. Max Ahrens, of course, and Norwich, so highly sought after. Tariq Lamptey, who moved from Chelsea to Brighton and, and impressed in a few games towards the end of the season. Nathan Ferguson, as well, has just joined Palace from West Brom. So it's a very talented uh, group of, of fullbacks as well uh, in the same age group. He, he burst onto the scene, um, Middlesbrough under Jonathan Woodgate last year really decided to lean on on some of their younger talent. They were one of those clubs who had always spoken about having a really good academy, lots of talent coming through, but they weren't really promoting it. And they, they had this group of senior players that were kind of blocking a lot of pathways. And, and actually one of the good things that Woodgate did, while the results on the pitch were, were pretty disastrous, was to bring through Jed Spence and Hayden Coulson. And immediately they injected into what was quite an old team, just legs, essentially. Energy and legs and speed. Um, Coulson plays down the left uh, and, and Jed Spence down the right. And at this point, it's still not 100% whether they are right backs, right wing backs, or even right or left midfielders. So we're still kind of working out where they'll both finish up. But Spence uh, just instantly just provided this team with something a bit different. Um, he's really quick. He carries the ball really well. Something of a calling card for him with just these absolutely lung-bursting runs down the right wing, you know, carrying the ball from one, you know, from his own half right to the byline and delivering um, signs of, of perfectly good delivery from out wide as well. And yeah, he's he's just the sort of player that, again, depending on how Neil Warnock wants to use him this season, and there's, there might be a bit of a myth that Warnock hates young players. It's not quite right. Uh, and I think that Jed Spence will be a key player for him. Hopefully Warnock can sort of develop, develop his defensive instincts. I'm sure he'll make sure that he's... Uh, uh, growing his appetite for the physical side of the game and, and, and hopefully that won't dampen what is a, a very exciting uh, dribbler or ball carrier, I'd say, from from, uh, from right-sided areas. Where does that Warnock thing come from? Because obviously my, my definitive memory of him, and this is going to age me a little bit, is him bringing through Michael Brown and Phil Jagielka at Sheffield United during that, that season when they, um, when they lost in the playoff final. Like I, I know he's a little bit sort of nut and bolty, um, with his football teams. But that seems a little bit, I don't know, he's been terribly successful for someone that's derided as much as he is. Yeah, I think. look, it might be a more recent thing. There's just, you know, his, the cult of Neil Warnock has kind of solidified more and more over the last five years, hasn't it? Um, the sort of style of football that he plays, which seems fairly rudimentary and, and is at times very direct and, and focused on, you know, second balls, which which is the sort of thing that, that has become unfashionable, even though uh, you literally cannot argue with his results. He, he came in at Rotherham and um, orchestrated a, a, a remarkable survival in the championship against the odds. He then took Cardiff from just above the relegation zone up the table in his first season, 
and then to the top of it, or second place rather, uh, in his second season, where Cardiff were not expected to be challenging at all for, for the Premier League in that time. Uh, and then he came in at Borough with eight games to go, and within, you know, they'd just dropped into the relegation zone, and, and with four games gone, it was quite clear that they'd be safe. So the, the results are impeccable. Um, I, I would say that certainly that Cardiff squad, it was just quite an old squad. Like There just weren't many young players getting minutes. There weren't many young players there, to be quite honest. So whether that's the, the, the talent available to him that he's not keen on, probably more likely than he just doesn't like young players. And, you know, this Middlesbrough side, they're, they're, they're without parachute payments now. They're having to cut costs significantly. And what that means is they are going to have to lean on some of these young players. So hopefully he can go some way to sort of dispel those myths and, and really develop what are a, a group of quite talented young players. Okay, so on the other side of your defence, you've gone for uh, Norwich's Sam McCallum. Um, are you expecting Jamal Lewis to leave? I mean, I think most of us are, but um, is that the presumption here? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I sort of, I put Sam McCallum down because I think he's a really interesting player and almost having done that, now I'm a little concerned that if we revisit this in a few months, he might actually be out on loan somewhere, which wouldn't be ideal, but wouldn't be a, a total disaster. Because I think even if Lewis goes, they've signed a, a, a Spanish lad called Quintilla, uh, also on loan. And I think the suggestion is that McCallum is, you know, is, is going to be battling either Lewis and Quintilla or potentially just Quintilla for that left back role uh, and maybe won't be the sort of um, the obvious starter, at least to begin with. But lovely segue here because that's what they said about him last year. <laughs> he started last season at Coventry, thought of as a very raw talent with a lot of athleticism and, and pace and probably would get some minutes in the cup competitions, but would not be the, the first team's left back. They had quite a good left back uh, called Mason. Um, and within a few months, it just became quite clear that once they switched to three at the back and had so much onus on the wing backs providing width in the final third, because they played this sort of box midfield system with, with two sitting midfielders and two attacking midfielders. Uh, and it really was the fullbacks or the wingbacks rather who had to provide the width. That's where McCallum's skill set really came into its own because just the 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 stamina and speed with which he got up and down the flanks. Um, they had some midfielders who could switch play really well, and that was really effective for them. He actually became, you know, you'd almost say one of their biggest creative threats, even though he wouldn't be considered a, a creative player necessarily, just because he was the one getting into really good positions down the left hand side. So I think what's interesting about him. You get this quite a lot in in the in the EFL, and it's and it's pretty exciting for me. Um, you know, a lot of players come down from uh, Premier League academies and and come down with with this pedigree, and you know they've been in these lush academies for their lifetime. Um, Sam McCallum is actually a graduate of Jamie Vardy's V9 Academy. Um, he was playing non-league football for Hearn Bay. Uh, he's from the sort of Canterbury Kent area. He'd never been attached to a to a professional side, uh, and when he went to Jamie Vardy's V9 Academy uh, about two years ago now, uh, the, one of the recruitment guys from Coventry saw him uh, and decided that he had the tools to to mould into a uh, a modern attacking wing back, and and that's exactly what they've done. Coventry, you know, 20 games he played, essentially 25 games, maybe three and a half million quid uh, to Norwich City. It's it's testament to his development over the last few years, and. And, you know, th there's plenty su to suggest that if you haven't had that sort of formal education in an academy system, well, does that mean you've got a, an, e an even higher ceiling? Does that mean you've got unbelievable amounts of untapped potential? Certainly in the case of Jamie Vardy, it, it did seem that way. So hopefully Sam McAdam uh, is, is in the right spot here with Norwich, who I think you can, you can trust Norwich to 
to do right by him, whether that is making him a first-team player or finding him the right sort of pathway, uh, loan, loan minutes or something like that. I'm just excited to see what happens to him over the next few years. Ali, I'm going to ask you to rattle through your four midfield players. We've got two central, two attacking midfielders. Go, discuss. Yeah, Lewis Travis uh, of Blackburn is a player that I'm excited about. Uh, just not the sort of player that we've seen sort of developing in the championship in, in recent seasons. Where, for the most part, we've seen, as I've discussed already, young fullbacks doing well and getting Premier League moves, young centre-backs as well, or, or attacking players with pace and skill. Travis is uh, a sort of ball-winning number six, you'd say, but he's got the sort of skill set where he can play multiple different roles in the centre of midfield. And I think that's quite a valuable thing uh, for any manager to have because it means you can, you, can, you can use different players and different systems and you can rely on Travis to sort of thrive um, pretty much in any formation, any system that you'd want to play because he uh, wins the ball. He's got a real thirst for, for the defensive side of the game, for the midfield battle. Um, and he wins his duels at a very high percentage. He makes tackles and interceptions. He's got a real nice, uh, I think on this pod, you're allowed to say words like this. He's got a real nice sort of shithouse vibe to him where he draws a lot of fouls, wins a lot of free kicks in the midfield area to release pressure on his team, even at times where you might think he wasn't actually fouled. Um, and on the ball is probably where he has the, the most improvement to make if he's to be a Premier League sensible transfer in the near future. He's, he's by no means poor on the ball, but he's... I would describe him as tidy uh, rather than creative. Um, he sort of he definitely knows how to keep possession uh, and makes pretty good decisions in possession. Rarely puts his team at risk, but I wouldn't say he's hugely creative, uh, and he hasn't yet shown much of a goal threat uh, in terms of you know getting into the opposition area and, and, and finishing. But that that's probably down more to his role uh, than any huge deficiencies that he has. So look, I just wanted a, a spot in my team for a hardworking midfield player who I think is. Uh, yeah, who I think is impressed over the last two seasons, established himself as Blackburn's one of their key players, and he's only 22. So I'm looking forward to seeing what happens to him over the next few seasons as well. Then Callum Styles of Barnsley is a bit of a wild card here because uh, he wasn't playing for Barnsley basically at all until the last few games of the season. They had that miraculous survival, did they not? And Styles was at the heart of that. He's a, he's a very small uh, left-footed player who I think is a central midfield player ultimately, but has played left wing back for them. Um, they've got a really interesting manager, Gerhard Struber, who takes a sort of Bielsa approach in not really caring what players' natural positions are, but actually fitting them into to all and any positions across the pitch. Styles is just one to watch. Looks really tidy. As I said, he is small, but he's sort of a real bustling midfield player and just tons of quality on that left peg. So he really impressed for Barnsley in their last few games of the season. And I think he'll be a key player for them this year. Okay, moving forward, um, you've gone for Dominguez Kina, uh, who I remember a couple of years ago when, when, when a, a lot of Watford fans spoke really positively about him, and yet he's never sort of he's never really made any kind of convincing impression in the Premier League. Mm. What's the thinking here? Well, the thinking is not necessarily based on what I know or think about him, but rather uh, on Twitter the other day on the Not the Top Twenty account just asking people on Twitter which young player at their club they think will sort of make the leap this season and, and start getting a lot more minutes and hopefully develop into a key player. And we got about 10 responses from Watford fans. They all said Queener. So he's obviously someone that the fans really want to see. Yeah. It feels like every now and again you get, you get a situation where a club's relegation can be very good for a young player who is existing at that club who probably wouldn't 
be risked in the Premier League, but might get a bit more game time. So I'm I'm hoping to see this kid who uh, is 20 years old. He's played for all the Portuguese youth teams who have been so successful as a key creative part of those teams. So there must be a lot of talent in there. He has scored some spectacular goals in his limited appearances for Watford so far. And I just hope that when the dust settles on what is going to be a ridiculously busy six weeks for Watford and their recruitment team, uh, we end up with Quina sort of playing in the hole or, or as an advanced eight uh, in a Watford side who hopefully will have relaxed a bit and calmed down a bit and uh, and, can, and can challenge uh, at the top end of the division. Yeah, it'd be interesting because I remember when he when he left West Ham, he was kind of he was one of the players used to whip their ability to uh, um, to denigrate their ability to bring through developing players. He was a kind of a black mark against their their, their academy pipeline. So that'd be really interesting. Um, your forward line, uh, there's going to be some familiar faces in here, but can we start with one I don't recognise? Um, Brentford's Helil de Fisoglu. Um Talk to me about him. Yeah, so uh, just quickly, uh, we've missed out Ilias Chair, who's QPR. He's the kind of uh, anointed one to replace the output of Eze. Uh, and he is a, a small attacking midfield player with an absolutely unbelievable long shot. Uh, he burst onto the scene a bit like Eze, that loan spell at Wickham. Uh, Chair was on loan at Stevenage, not this most recent season, but the one before. And he scored like seven goals from about 30 yards. So we really like his ability to test the keeper from range. And he's sort of trying to develop into more of a creative number 10 as well. They're going to lean on him really heavily. QPR are going all in on, on some of their own academy players. And Chair is one of them. He grew up playing cage football in uh, in Belgium, where he was from, and you can really see that in his style of play. So, just because he's so small but has such a powerful shot, I just really wanted to flag him up because I think he will be at least on the goal of the uh, season contenders, if not um, a, a player that makes the leap. And then, yeah, Dervis Oglu of Brentford. Uh, I'm I'm not an expert in Dutch football, but he came over to Brentford from Dutch football. Uh, and what happens often with with Brentford is uh, fans of let's say French football, if they're signing someone like Ben Rama, or fans of uh, or Burmo, shall I say as well, who's part of the in France under twenty one team, or someone like Dervis Oglu, there's sometimes a bit of confusion from abroad as to why Brentford are able to sign these players, but the. the the pathway is very clear now and it's not hard for, for potential signings to take a look at, at some of the players that Brentford have signed, that they've developed, that they've given opportunities to and have, have been a launch pad for, for bigger moves elsewhere. So Dervisoglu is kind of the, the one who I think might step up uh, if and when Ollie Watkins moves. Um, their, their succession planning, Brentford, is what stands out among other things about them. The fact that they always seem to have someone ready, already in the building when they sell a player for big money. So um, I, it, it's it's less about Dervisoglu himself, to be honest, than about the fact that if Brentford have signed him and if he's had six months to get up to speed with things, he's probably going to be really good. And it, we'll probably talk about him uh, next summer having scored 20 goals and probably linked with a move to the Premier League. How many players do you reckon Brentford are going to lose this summer? Um, it did feel as if it was kind of... I mean, they're built to to, to exist in cycles, obviously, for, for very good reason. Um, Ollie Watkins, as we've been speaking, has actually been christened Championship Player of the Year, um, which is good for him. Um, what, um, yeah, what, how much of a rebuild are they actually going to have to do over the next few weeks? Um, not as much as... You know, I think they're favourites for the title. And if you look at someone like Watford and Bournemouth, clearly they've got more to do because they'll have more players leaving. But it is the significance of the guys leaving uh, Brentford. I'm, I'm almost positive, and there's no inside info here, and I can't tell you where they're going. But I'm pretty confident that Ben Rama will leave. Last summer, he was tipped to leave, and, and I think wanted to leave and, and was eventually persuaded to stay, which is obviously a good decision. But it did mean that he didn't really play for the first six weeks of last season because he was a bit grumpy. Um, and, and Ollie Watkins as well, I think he gave Brentford 
you know, sort of promise them that one more season uh, and then we'll leave with their blessing. So clearly they've got, you know, uh, what is it, about 45 goals to replace there um, with, with players like Derva Soglu having to come in and step up. From what we've seen of the guys already at the club, people like Tarek Fosu and Derva Soglu, uh, Marcus Force, who's a young player, striker, you can't say with confidence that they will, you know, match the level of Ben Rama and Watkins. That seems unlikely, doesn't it? But you, you, but you do just still believe in the whole system and you believe that they will probably have a couple of transfers lined up for when they get those big transfer fees. So, yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to lose two sensational players for the level, put it that way, and, th- and, that, and that can be quite damaging. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Bees have a similar poor start and then get stronger towards the end of the season. Troy Parrott's on your list. He's gone on loan to Millwall. And that's a really interesting one because obviously he's following the, um, the, the sort of the lineage of Harry Kane going out mm. on, uh, on loan down to the New Den. Um, it's interesting because he, um, I've seen a bit of him in both um, Tottenham's uh, under-23 games, but also um, he got a few appearances um, in Pochettino's last preseason. Very complete forward. Also, mm. he's a very developed forward for a teenager. Like physically, he is already a man. Um, how do you yeah. reckon he's going to do in the championship? Well, I hope he does well. That there, there was a lot of talk, or there's always a lot of talk about how you mustn't expect too much from players making their first loan, um, just because uh, it's so often it takes them out of a comfort zone. They are very young adults, sometimes not even technically adults, um, and all that comes with that off the field can sometimes, uh, you know, impact performance on the field. And even if you might be considered a wonder kid on on football manager sometimes that first loan can can be quite tough the problem the problem is is that when Tammy Abraham went to Bristol City and scored 20 odd goals on his first loan and Rian Brewster went to Swansea in January last year and was absolutely magnificent and would have scored 20 goals had he been there for the whole season all of a sudden you're starting to see a, a crop of young players who didn't need much time to adapt so I think Parrots I think it's I think it just seems to work out for everyone involved here there's a lot of good feeling about Millwall at the moment they were they were very good second half of last season um, they've got a very settled squad uh, which is sort of evolving a little bit to become a bit Bit less direct under Gary Rowett and try and become a bit uh, a side that creates more chances because that's one of the things that really holds them back. I don't think, unlike Tammy at Bristol City and Brewster at Swansea, that Parrot is going to get a lot of chances put on a plate for him. So he's going to have to work really hard sometimes to create chances for himself. Um, I'm not, not necessarily expecting 20 goals from him, but I would like to see, as you've said, this sort of complete forward that he is tipped as being, um, playing for a team that, uh, that will give him some opportunities uh, and who might well be something of a dark horse in, in this year's championship. So I, I, that's more of a, I'm just interested to see him play. Uh, and then, yeah, a couple of other ones. I just can't wait to see if Dom Solanke has found his shooting boots because I think if he has, he could be um, a, a pretty a pretty impressive goal scorer uh, if Bournemouth can, can sort of deal with the relegation hangover. Uh, and then I just wanted to shout out a, a player who has played a bit last season, uh, Tyrese Campbell, who plays for Stoke, son of Kevin Campbell. Stoke have got about eight different strikers, so the pathway for him has been quite difficult. Um, but he is such a slick finisher. It's like if you just watch the goals that he scores, you'll be left thinking that this guy is just uh, it's just a bit of a gun when it comes to finishing. And, and I really want to see him get more opportunities because I think um, he reminds me a bit of Jared Bowen, the power with which he shoots and, and the way that he always seems to find the corners. Uh, I think... Uh, maybe his all-round game isn't as developed and you've got people like Sam Vokes who you kind of know what you're going to get if you're Michael O'Neill but hopefully Campbell will get uh, some more minutes this season and and continue what is quite an impressive sort of minutes per goal ratio that he has so far in his career. 
Solanke is uh, Solanke is the one that absolutely fascinates me. If you if you watch him live, I it, it feels he feels like the kind of player that's done really badly by um, the way football values statistics because there mm. is quite obviously a very capable footballer there. Um, it just feels as if he's not at Bournemouth in the system that Bournemouth used towards the end of their time in the Premier League. It wasn't quite built around what he did well. For sure. Um, so it's really interesting to see if he can play. You know, sometimes when a, when a player drops down a level um, and finds a little bit more of an equilibrium, he's going to be playing under a new manager, of course. Mm. It'd be really interesting to see how he adjusts because he was the one in that age group. If you go back a couple of years yeah. um, to his time at Chelsea, he was the one that everyone spoke about. So it'd be... It, I, be um be really interesting to see how he does. Completely agree. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's with with young players and and with people who have had that sort of career path that Solanke's had, which has taken him to Chelsea and Liverpool, and then kind of a big money move as well to Bournemouth. Like the 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 way that you're judged and the pressures put on you are probably not that fair at times. Uh, and he's such a young player, and and and. You know, those guys who come through with such pedigree from the youth ranks, it does not always translate into a top level um, Premier League career. That does not mean that, that they can't be very, very good pros uh, and very good goal scorers. And, you know, the, the way in which Solanke just absolutely destroyed youth football makes me very confident that in the right, in the right situation, uh, he can sort of bounce back and, and, and move towards the top of, uh, of the footballing pyramid once more after a, a brief stint in the second tier, hopefully. I wonder whether actually he, he was a victim of what happened to Chelsea because it was as if the world made their mind up about what kind of person he was because 100%. all the stories leaked out about the contract. Um, he went to Liverpool. Um, the The narrative around him was sort of a, a player that a, a young player that had got a little bit ahead of himself. And so as and when it didn't quite go to plan at Liverpool and then Bournemouth, everyone was extremely harsh. I felt like a lot of people were very harsh without actually watching him play live. I think that's right. And, I, you know, I think... People make judgments on on young players' personalities at a time where they are still developing as adults. And as with everything else, um, uh, you know, not not to get on my soapbox, but you know, you get you just get extremes as always. You get this bloke's not a good bloke, or you get this bloke's an unbelievable professional who's so determined to get to the top. Yeah. And we all know the sorts of um, the the sorts of biases and and uh, you know subconscious or otherwise that people have and and Solanke's been something of a victim of that so I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing him flourish. Okay, so Joe has asked me to wrap up, which could go quite badly. Um, I'm going to do my finest Joe Divine impression. First of all, I'm going to thank you, Ali Maxwell, for coming on. Hey, thank you guys. I love coming on. So any and all invites uh, are welcome. Well, we'll have you back very very soon <laughs> so that uh, people can uh, revisit the predictions. Thank you very much, Ali. Thank you, guys.